0: Thanks for Talking Mule Deer with Steve Belinda and Jody Stemmler. The Mule Deer Foundation is the only conservation group in North America dedicated to restoring, improving, and protecting mule deer and black-tailed deer and their habitat. MDF is a strong voice for hunters in access, wildlife management, and conservation policy issues. To find out more, visit www.muledeer.org, and stay tuned for the next episode of Talking Mule Deer. This is Talkin' Mule Deer with your hosts, Steve Belinda and Jody Stemmler. Talkin' Mule Deer takes you on a journey to learn more about the Mule Deer Foundation, Mule Deer and black Deer Biology and Management, tips and tactics for hunting, conservation issues, and even features some of our corporate and celebrity partners. Now, let's start Talkin' Mule Deer. Jody Stimler.
1: And I'm Steve Belinda. Uh, welcome back to another edition of Talk of Mule Deer. Uh, today, we're Jody. We're
0: going to well, be talking about it. Well, we haven't Nevada been here for a while. while. You've been hunting been a, a lot.
1: <laughs> hunting season. <laughs>
0: That's what it is, for sure. But but we've got some great guests here. Why don't you introduce them, Steve?
1: Yeah, so we're going to be talking with uh, some folks from Nevada. Uh, we've got Director of the Division of Wildlife, Tony Wosley, and we have Parkant. his uh, Game Division Administrator, Mike Scott. Welcome, gentlemen.
2: Thank you. Morning, Steve. Hey, Jody.
0: Hey, guys, how are you doing? Thank you so much for taking time to to visit with us. Obviously, Nevada is a huge mule deer state, uh, and I know you guys have a lot. Tony, we've had you on the um, on the podcast before, but now we need to call you El Presidente. Uh, you are the president of the <laughs> Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies for this year, too, are you not?
2: That is true. Um, Rumors are habits. Yeah, I wasn't <laughs> going to reveal that part. Um, but yeah, thank you, thank you for acknowledging that. Yeah. Well, and I'm that's sure. a pretty
0: important role because that's involved. That's that's the leading the organization, overseeing all of the state fish and wildlife agencies' um, engagement and working that way. So, congratulations to you on that. That's a big deal.
2: Thank you very much. I appreciate that. It's a truly an honor to represent all the state wildlife agencies in that regard, and and uh, have the opportunity to share some of my own thoughts and visions with with that association and represent you know, the full state and provincial membership.
1: Well, congrats, Tony. And and you know, we always like talking to you because you're an old Deer Elk guy that's come up through the ranks and is now in the leadership position. We've worked with you a long time with uh in the state of Nevada and with Mule Deer working group at WAFA. So um we're not gonna ask you for a little bit of your background because we've already covered that in previous episodes. But Mike, um I know that this role for you is fairly new. Why don't you give us a little bit of your history and and what really drives your passion for your work there, in Nevada.
3: Uh, thank you. Yeah, I've uh, I've actually been around uh, Nevada Department of Wildlife for quite a while. Um, I I started working seasonally in 1986 and uh, started on the Guzler Crew uh, in southern Nevada, the water development project in 1989. Um, was on that for a couple of years and then um, I moved into the, the they moved the project to the northern Nevada and. We worked on um, chucker guzzlers for for about six or eight years there, and uh, in 1999 I moved down to Pioche, Nevada, southeastern Nevada, uh, and I was the the game biologist there for about 15 years, and uh, had some changes in my life, and ended up moving to Reno as a supervising biologist, and I was there for a few years, and um, I was considering retiring, and uh, Tony and Jack um, asked if I would consider. Sticking around for a few more years as the, the chief of game, so um, I've I've done that, and uh, I, I never realized that the 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 challenges that I would face as the chief of game. I've I've, I've I loved being a game biologist, uh, you know, it was it was awesome, and you know, the chief of game is a little bit more of a challenge, but it's it's a truly an enjoyable job, and I I, uh, I appreciate the opportunity.
0: You know, it's a challenge and and, and a great thing that we've got fantastic biologists um but you end up uh, becoming an administrator and you don't get to do what you love to do which is spend time out on the ground so tell us a little bit about some of your priorities and the the work that you're doing uh your mule deer initiative work and things like that there in nevada
3: yeah we we uh you know through my career we've had great success with bighorn sheep and elk and and uh, antelope um partly due to some habitat changes in nevada but uh, those habitat changes have also um, really resulted, uh, or helped result in a, a long-term decline in, in mule deer numbers. And I just felt, uh, you know, before before I ended my career, that I would like to uh, at least move our our uh, the game division towards prioritizing some projects uh, and doing work for mule deer. And we we created an oversight committee uh, a little more than a year ago. Uh, some, some really highly uh, respected um, uh, uh, scientists and, and consultants and, and sportsmen, a um, number of wildlife commissioners. And then we, we created 14 teams around the state, uh, subcommittees, if you will, that um, we, we've asked them to identify limiting factors for mule deer in their respective areas. And then suggest projects to address those limiting factors. And uh, you know, last night we had a we had a meeting to where a lot of those projects were submitted. Uh, we ended up with a total of 34 projects on a statewide level that we we began talking about last night. And uh, some of them are big projects, and some of them are smaller projects. But um, I believe they were they were asking for about uh, 2.6 million dollars worth of worth of work to be uh, focused on mule deer. So
0: state, um, that's statewide, or was that a That's, that's statewide. Yeah. yeah. So, so a lot of uh, anyway, we're,
3: yeah, we're, we're, uh, I'm, I'm excited about this project I'm re-energized really and um, I, I really want to see it succeed. So we're, we're, we're working on that.
0: What types of projects were identified that give us some of the scopes of some of the issues that they're seeing in the state?
3: Yeah, some of them are, are like uh, sagebrush uh, rehabilitation type projects, habitat projects. Some of them are pinyon juniper removal projects. There's uh, spring fencing projects. There are um, a lot of mule deer collaring uh, projects. And then there's uh, a number of predator removal projects that were uh, proposed. So, um, and, and I think there was even one project that was a, a signage project. In a in a, a really high density mule deer winter range that is is just making people aware that uh, at that time of year mule deer are sensitive to you know people uh, walking around so um it, it kind of varied it varies in different parts of the state and uh you know in, in central nevada we have a lot of pinny juniper invasion um and then in northern nevada we have we've had a lot of fires that have uh, uh, reduced habitat. So it, it varies across the state, but um, yeah, it's uh, there was a lot of really good projects and a lot of people were were pretty pleased with the projects that were moved
1: forward. You know, Jody, when, when I hear Mike talk about those projects, it gets us excited here at MDF because, you know, those are the things that we can really help with. Um, we can, you know, we raise funding through our local chapter events and, and our banquets and gunapaloozes and and beers for deers. Um, we also have grant making and and other philanthropy efforts that we can then turn around and put money on the ground in those already identified projects that the state has done all the work on Um, a good example of that is you know the Tawano mountain project that we did last year we received some funding from bass pro shops and and cabela's outdoor fund Uh, we worked with our uh, our staff randy morrison And our local chapter out of, uh, I think it was Elko, um, to figure out whether we could combine some money. We worked with the Division of Wildlife's uh, local biologist who had a project going on some BLM lands for juniper reduction. And we were able to take $20,000 of Bass Pro Shop money, combine it with $20,000 of local chapter rewards money, give that $40,000 to the Nevada Heritage Account um, Outdoor Fund and actually 160,000 came out the door to the project so that uh leverage in that approach really allowed us to get about 300 extra acres done on that project without uh you know mdf having to get in there and do the soup the nuts uh, project planning implementation and so it it emphasizes to us that partnerships are great and building on existing opportunities and the work that the state and the federal agencies are already done with the approach that we can bring at MDF can be a great successful model.
0: Yeah, and just just for, uh, we've talked about this in other podcasts, but uh, pinion juniper are obviously their, their native species. They've been on the landscape for years, but because of fire suppression, they have started to spread back and more densely into sagebrush rangelands. Is that correct? And these are Um, important wintering areas for mule deer. They're important for sage grouse and uh, removing some of the invasive newer pinion and juniper trees helps to restore those sagebrush habitats, make sure that the the bunch grasses are there and there's plenty of forage uh, and forbs on the ground. I'm assuming that's all still the same there for for Nevada. Is that correct?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, We've seen the same exact issues, especially through central Nevada, but even in Parts of northern Nevada uh, piny juniper expansion uh, really tends to limit uh, mule deer habitat as well as other species, sage grouse in particular. But um, yeah, so I, I'm it, being down in southeastern Nevada. It's it's really really dense piny juniper So um, I'm I'm very very uh, interested in doing pinon-juniper projects.
0: Excellent. And I think we were going to be doing some more work there on the Torontos again this year. We do have to take a break to hear from our supporters. So we'll be back in just a few minutes and talk a little bit more, Tony, about uh, some of the migration corridor and habitat connectivity work that you've been very involved in, uh, both at the state and the national level.
3: Elk, sheep, big old muleys, not a problem for the 27 Nosler. We packed it with more downrange punch than the 300 Wind Mag. We designed it to be flatter shooting than the 6.5 PRC. The 27 Nozzler is everything you've heard, all that you've asked for, and plenty more. So enough talking. Check out the numbers for yourself and see what makes the 27 Nosler such a beast at Nosler.com.
0: All right, we're back. Thank you guys for, uh, for waiting us out. And thank you to our supporters. Tony, before we left on our break, um, we asked about some of the migration corridors. You have been a leader through the Western Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies, working with the Department of the Interior, all of the Western states on big game migration corridors policy, as well as implementing projects. Tell us a little bit more about your involvement there and then what you all have done at the state level on that.
2: Well, thanks for the question, Jody. This is a this is one of those issues um, that I think is has long been either misunderstood or underappreciated. And with the uh, increase in in technology, some of the technological advancements in in GPS collaring technology, you know, we've learned just how important habitat connectivity is. We've learned. Uh, just how tied to these corridors, you know, many of these animals are, and we've been able to, to better delineate, you know, where these animals go, uh, when they go, where where they stop, and, and really brought some not only unique technologies, but some of the analytical tools, um, you know, from, from some of our, our friends and the academic institutions to, to better understand this. And so it, it's been a, a growing, uh, realization and some with that has has come some opportunities and so uh, during the last presidential administration, Secretarial Order three three six two uh, from Secretary Zinke at the time really highlighted the importance of migration corridors in in some western states and and three key species were were part of that and and mule deer, elk and Pronghorn, and and so subsequent to that, um, been a, a great deal more energy, effort, conversation, and and some unique funding opportunities as well. And that momentum that was created um, has carried over into the current administration, and and there's a great deal of work uh, ongoing throughout throughout the Western U.S. and and a growing appreciation for for animals that you know might go in excess of 100 miles to get from. From one seasonal range to another, summer range to winter range, etc., and the importance of of having that connected habitat. So I I uh, I'm super appreciative of of that secretarial order and much of the work that's that's happened as a result of it, and uh, continue to be excited um, about our opportunities to work with our land management agencies, as as Steve said at at, at the top of the show. And, how reliant we are on those, those relationships. in in our state of Nevada, it's 85% federally administered. And so if we don't have our federal land management agency partners on board, uh, things like movement corridors, uh, then it's oftentimes the wildlife that would pay the price.
1: Now, Tony, one of the things I've seen, <clears throat> two things. One is sort of a, a funny anecdote. It seems like every state's trying to, uh, beat out their, their brethren states who has the longest migration corridors. Every time we see a new bunch of data, we seem to be finding these, you know, almost triple digit migration corridors for multiple species. And I think that's pretty cool to watch. Uh, but really we've seen some, some of the the federal direction then come down into the state level administration. And I know you guys have had, uh, an executive order signed recently by the governor. Tell us a little bit about that.
2: Yeah. uh Um, you know, this, is, this is kind of in one of those, um, I guess, byproducts of that secretarial order where through you know, increased awareness, through increased data, uh, through an understanding of the importance of, of these corridors, uh, we were able to actually get a, an executive order, a governor's executive order that, that has called out uh, the need for a, a habitat you know, connectivity plan in, in partnership with the Department of Transportation. And, and our agency um, here at Nevada Department of Wildlife has, has long understood and appreciated the importance of those corridors. And, and we have a longstanding relationship with, with our friends over at the Department of Transportation. And we have some some really uh, cool overpasses and underpasses. And through through trail cameras, we've documented their usage by a whole host of species. Um, you know, the, the intended uh, beneficiaries and then some, some ancillary species as well, um, everything from, you know, predators to, to you know, domestic animals, uh, but just seeing the importance uh, of, those, of those structures, um, you know, it, it, it's nice to have it formalized in an executive order, those, those relationships, and the key product mentioned in that executive order is a statewide connectivity plan, uh, which will help us. Uh, to, to further advance you know, protection of those corridors, delineation of those corridors, and provide benefits to a whole host of species.
1: And I would imagine that'll help with your relationships with the Department of Transportation who, you know, throughout the country oftentimes don't put wildlife on the, the top page when they're thinking about the issues they have to think about.
2: Yeah, and I i mean, we have a great relationship with our State Department of Transportation, and I think that's why we were able to to achieve what we achieved 15, 20 years ago with overpasses and underpasses, and we had some some key allies and wildlife advocates, and, and that's what it's all about is relationship and, and partnership. And so in some ways, the executive order you know, formalizes that and calls out a Habitat Connectivity Plan as a product. But it isn't uh, that kind of partnership with our state department of transportation isn't isn't new or or unique. So I'd, I'd be remiss if I didn't express some appreciation and, and gratitude for all the wildlife advocates and supporters that we have in our state department of transportation.
1: Now, Tony, I'm going to ask you a question, and this and, and this is both for you and Mike. Um, how do you do with Area 51? <laughs> there's got to be deer out there there's got to be you know other animals out there
2: Uh, yeah they glow in the dark Uh, (laughs) i there are those uh you know department of defense lands that are are mostly off limits to us we do have some agreements in some places to to get access for short windows of time you know for some some bighorn sheep hunting opportunities but there are a, a lot of those dod administered lands you know and for good reason that are off limits uh unexploded ordnance and active bombing. And, um, yeah, I, I don't know, Mike, do you have any thoughts?
3: Uh, you know, we, we work pretty close with, with some of those, um, they actually have biologists that we work with. Um, but it's in particular, it's more related to bighorn sheep, uh, desert bighorn sheep down in that country. And there, there certainly are mule deer out there, but, uh, again, you know, the, the opportunities to actually go and, and, uh, you know, Try to see them or or hunt them are are extremely limited, if not impossible.
0: Yeah, well, we certainly understand that. I think uh, I think Steve was was largely talking about the potential for aliens since we're right around the Halloween. Well, yeah. How do here, we so. manage
1: those <laughs> inter con- inner interstellar deer that are moving? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's a whole planet different to planet boundary, hit your ride uh, on the on the flying there. saucers. So,
0: <laughs> all right, guys, we have to take another break here. But uh, we talked a little bit about some of the challenges. But there's a handful of other ones that are not necessarily unique to uh, Nevada, but are certainly felt more uh, more d- deeply by Nevada, including uh, feral horses. So when we come back from our break and hearing from our supporters, I want to talk a little bit about more about some of the things you guys have been dealing with feral horses, um, your drought, uh, increasing fires that you guys have been dealing with recently. So thanks. We'll take a break and hear from our supporters. For three generations and over 75 years, Weatherby has remained dedicated to excellence and innovation in producing quality rifles, shotguns, and ammunition. With 15 cartridges and unmatched ballistic superiority, know that nothing shoots flatter, hits harder, or is more accurate. Carry a Weatherby on your hunt of a lifetime and know you can depend on it to get the job done. At Weatherby, we exist to do one thing, inspire the dreams of hunters and shooters. To learn more, visit weatherby.com. All right, guys, before the break, we were talking about alien deer, um, but, <laughs> but we were also about to transition into a handful of the challenges um, that you all face, some of which are unique. Uh, and yeah, feral horses is, is something I know you guys deal with, uh, not exclusively, there's other states that have them, but you guys, uh, particularly with drought, have been dealing with it substantially more. Tell us a little bit more about what you guys are dealing with and, and what those challenges are.
2: Go ahead, Tom. I guess I'll start. Um, There's two things, I think, that make Nevada kind of the epicenter. One is just the sheer number of horses where um, the overwhelming majority of of feral horses um, reside in Nevada. The other complicating factor is the the desert ecosystem it's it's a fragile ecosystem it's not a productive ecosystem and it it did not most of the plants within it didn't evolve with uh under a, a high disturbance regime and so the disturbance the the herbivory from the horses the hoof action from the horses um, and the limited water resources um all really confound um You the the issues and and it's one of those things that you know we're in a drought and we keep our fingers crossed and we think okay well we're going to turn the corner we're going to turn the corner and and we get more and more drought same thing with with feral horse population you think oh we're going to get more gathers we're going to have more funding we're going to try to get these numbers in check and get down to appropriate management levels and and it just keeps getting uh, more and more difficult Horses are more and more numerous. Drought is more and more prevalent. Fires are more and more frequent and larger magnitude. And then invasive species come in after the fires, and and it kind of creates the the perfect storm of, of challenges. And and in some ways, you know, the, the longer we wait, the worse it gets. Um, and I think that's part of the the impetus behind some of the Mule deer enhancement uh, program efforts that, that Mike instituted. But it's it's. No shortage of challenges, and it goes right back to the relationship with our, our federal partners that you mentioned at the top of the show, Jody, and how important that is because we ultimately we're reliant on those federal partners uh, for the funding and and the management uh, of those animals.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's there's a. Ch- tendency for us to linger on gloom and doom um in in a lot of these issues right now right i mean there's a lot of people that are caught up on crises and challenges i think though that the proactive work um that you and many other states are doing is the positive story that we need to spend that there are things that can be done sorry steve i was i was going over you
1: no that's okay i just you know wild uh feral horses sorry almost slipped up there um present a challenge you know i I know tony you and i have talked about this one-on-one but you know besides the issue with fragile ecosystem putting more mouths on on the landscape that that you know you need to support with forage and space you know the territoriality issue that comes along with with wild horses or feral horses sorry slipped up and um you know I, i have watched them defend water sources from birds you know Everything that comes around, I've, I've seen stallions stand at, at water sources and, and really prevent that water from being utilized. Do you see a lot of that as part of the problem, Mike? Or is, is it really a, a true habitat, hoof action, eating too much issue?
3: Well, it's uh, it's everything. Um, you know, I I, I I grew up in Winnemucca, Nevada, northern northwestern Nevada. And when I was a little boy, um, we used to go out hunting, and every once in a while, you would see a group of wild horses. And at that time, I, I thought they were neat, but it's the number of them that, that um, you know, when they when they get to be such excessive numbers, there's they're, they're a lot less special. And, do you, and do I would, you have I would, I
0: would, statistics, I'm sorry, just on the appropriate management levels and where you're at? I know there's some, but do you guys have off the top of your head what? that i mean how much higher
2: you yeah. are yeah so we we're, we're over four times uh AML appropriate management level the the AML within the established horse management areas of the state place the the state horse population at appropriate management levels to be uh nearly 12,000 at this point in time we are in the neighborhood of 50,000 so we are over four times um what that appropriate management That's a big difference. Yeah,
0: that's a big difference. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there, Mike. I just wanted to give some perspective on how much more. Because yeah, I I think we've all seen wild horse bands, feral horse bands at various times, and thought that is cool. And I am a horse. I I ride. I show. But there's a difference. And when when they're out there, and it's it's a competition of resources, and it's not even competition. I mean, it's just how do we properly manage across the system for all the species, in particular those. Native species um, that we we have on the landscape, and it's not just game species; it's it's a whole bunch of other desert. Yeah, absolutely,
3: desert. it's everything. And and uh, you know, other some parts of the state are are better managed than others. But um, you know, I, I think every team that we received a a, a, um, a limiting factor ranking form from listed feral horses as being one of the major problems. But of the 34 projects that we received, not one of them was was had anything to do with horses because, you know, we don't have the ability to manage them. And, um, you know, it's largely, uh, you know, the BLM offices, but it's even above them because it's, it's got to come from above. And, um, you know, it's unfortunate, but we're, we're really in a, a tough spot with, with the number of horses that are out on the landscape.
1: Yeah, Congress has really tied uh, agency and state's hands and on, on dealing with some of the issues associated with with uh, borough and horse management in the West. And, you know, I've said Congress created it. Congress is going to have to fix it. And, you know, we've seen how everything's a fight these days on even stuff that is full partisan support. So, um You know, I I don't think it's it's something that everyone's aware of. We bring it up because it does affect how you guys manage wildlife and and mule deer in the desert state. And, you know, one of the other things that that folks don't realize is the impact of fire and annual invasive species. And we've got to take a break to, to hear from our supporters. But when we come back, I want to visit a little bit about, you know, how fire really can affect both the magnitude and the type of work that you do for mule deer management.
3: If you're buying or selling a trophy hunting or fishing property in the Western US, our friends at St. James Sporting Properties should be your go-to resource. St. James Sporting Properties is more than an elite group of professional ranch brokers. They're also passionate about chasing monster mule deer, highly successful big game hunters, and avid outdoorsmen. When you combine their passion and expertise in the outdoors with their industry-leading marketing program, you're guaranteed to have a first-class experience for more information go to the supporting partners page on MuleDeer.org, or give st james sporting properties a call today to buy or sell your dream sporting property
1: all right prior to the break uh, we were talking uh feral horses um the other the other issue that I see uh, as someone that tries to raise as much money for the the habitat work that gets done is is really the effect of wildfire and range fires uh, in a state like Nevada. I'm more familiar with the northern part of the range, uh, the state within the Great Basin. But you guys deal with fire at you know the landscape level every year. And uh, tell us a little bit about the challenges, the magnitude, and and how that really it drives how you guys look at habitat management and. How it can it can possibly affect how you manage populations of mule deer and other wildlife species?
2: Yeah, I'll I'll start. Um, you know, when we look at the statistics on on fire, we look at the acres, you know, per year, and we look at you know through history, we we know that that we're burning a whole lot more land, and we know the result of that oftentimes is. Is a habitat that's less favorable for mule deer, and I think those are some of the habitat changes that that Mike was referencing when he talked about some of the successes that that our agencies had for elk and pronghorn and even sheep to a lesser extent. And I think you know it's it's pretty easy to do, as Jody said, you know, with with the doom and gloom around fires, but I think there's some real um, silver linings, and that's some of the some of the science in how we not only predict fire, um, how we, how we come in after the fire, and there's some, some new chemical tools um, that will allow us to chemically fallow these areas. And so it, it extends the biological window that we can be effective in, in coming in to, to try to, you know, reseed these areas. We have a native seed strategy where we're trying to work with private landowners and, and producers and, and take some of the risk, uh associated with you know switching from a, a traditional crop to, to a native seed um, you know it, when we see these big fire years oftentimes it's it's you know we, we either run out of money or run out of seed and uh when seeds short the cost goes way up and we don't have a reliable source of of seed uh, so having some of these native seed strategies and and having traditional producers kind of shift their operation into native seed production. Um, A lot of potential on the horizon there. So between native seed availability, production, prediction of of fire location and those areas where we're likely to be most successful in either fighting the fire or reestablishing native vegetation and having some of the chemical tools to uh, chemically follow these areas. I think we're we're really moving in the right direction there. Ultimately, uh, we're also doing some green stripping, uh, meaning we use a a type of vegetation that's fire resistant, fire tolerant, uh, and plant that around areas of of important habitat to protect it from fire. Kind of along the lines of, you know, I- identify the core, you protect the core, grow the core. Um, so a lot of you know a lot of adaption i guess to to some of the challenges but you know the bottom line is we see way more fire way bigger fires uh way more intense fires and it is changing our habitats and affecting uh, the number of mule deer that that we can carry out there on the landscape
1: and tony i think that's a really good point the amount of fire and and the size of the fires um we mdf get a chance to look at the entire west and When we add up the amount of acres that are burned um, and where those locations are and the size of those fires, it almost becomes an enormous task to even figure out where to start. And, you know, Mike, I'm going to throw it to you. How do you figure out when you have millions of acres that, you know, could be affected by wildfire and annual invasive species and the other issues associated with that? Where do you start prioritizing where you can come in and make a difference on restoration, rehabilitation?
3: Uh, well, a lot of that is, is you know, going to be limited by the amount of funding that you have, and you have to pick whether it's historic areas that were wintering areas before, <coughs> excuse me, or, you know, um, places, y- you have to just seek those opportunities. And, um, you know, uh, last year in 2020, I went on a field trip up to uh, just outside of Battle Mountain to the Eisenhood Mountains. And um, Dyson Hoods have have long been a, a a pretty crucial winter range for Area Six mule deer, and in the in the early '90s that burned, <clears throat> and it was it was really an annual grassland uh, cheatgrass monoculture for 20 years, and I you know it was it was one of these places that I really really. Liked when I, you know, when I lived in that country and spent a lot of time hunting chucker, looking at deer, things like that. And when I went on this field trip, the, our our habitat division, working with our partners, federal partners, BLM, had done some projects in there where they used the the chemical fallow that Tony mentioned, a um, mazapic, and then came back and they they planted that with with both native and and some non-native um, uh, species, particularly forage kosha. And when I went in there, I looked at this place that, you know, 20 years ago was a, was a, a cheatgrass monoculture. And I looked at it. And I mean, it, it brought tears to my eyes. I, it, was, it was amazing to see what has come back from those efforts. And <clears throat> after that field trip, that's when I came back to Tony and I said, we need to start a project to, to, to seek funding for both our people and our federal partners to do this kind of work. And other places where where mule deer habitat has been lost. So um, that's that's kind of the nexus of this project. But that's exactly what we want to do: is these places where where crucial mule deer, especially wintering habitat, has been lost. Those are the places that we want to we want to get back into and and do projects. And, and you know, it depends on the the amount of precipitation that areas that uh, areas receive. And you know, no matter what we do, we're still really reliant on Mother Nature to be favorable, um, to, you know, we could spend millions of dollars on a project and if we don't get favorable precip, um, it's, it tends to be a lot less successful.
1: Yeah. One of the things we did, and, and I know Tony knows all about this cause he's heard me talk at many meetings is, you know, we overlap sage grouse, greater sage grouse habitat and mule deer habitat in a lot of places. And we try to capitalize on the, the priority that greater sage grouse has been getting, um, throughout the country because of the potential listing underneath the Endangered Species Act. And our former CEO used to say what's good for the bird is good for the herd, meaning the deer herd, not the cow herd, even though that there is benefits to, to cow herds and other livestock. And what it allowed us to do, um, and I've said it on our podcast before, it allows us to approach folks and say, do this work for mule deer rather than for sage grouse, and you can eliminate some of the baggage and and negative issues associated with greater sage grouse management still get the same work done but do it for the benefit of a species that you know most people care about Uh, whether you hunt mule deer or not they are the icon of the west they're representative of healthy rangelands healthy forest lands you know grasslands and it is something that you can see an immediate benefit because you know ungulates breed pretty quickly and you can rebuild a population and and get distribution mike as you were just talking back into areas that you know, we're affected years ago and we can start rebuilding healthy local herds. And, and you know, we're moving towards that approach, um, prioritizing our work, prioritizing where we work, who we work with, how we work. Uh, we'll be hearing more of that through the throughout the next year um, underneath Joel Peterson's leadership here at MDF. But it really, you know, I've used the term conservation triage. We can't do it all. We have to figure out where we can have the maximum impact and where we can have a chance to either restore, rehab or enhance uh, those mule deer habitats, blacktail deer habitats that are out there. And so, um, yeah, we really look forward to working with you. We're going to take one last break. And when we come back, I want to maybe jump into some, a little bit more fun things than some of this dry is, you know, how, how's mule deer season going in Nevada you know, how are you guys in your tag draws or, you know, your hunts and, you know, we can swap a little bit of, uh, you know, some fun stuff when
0: we get back. So uh, we're going to hear from our supporters and we'll be right back. The best hunting stories begin long before the harvest. They begin with the hard work of conservation groups like the Mule Deer Foundation working tirelessly to protect our hunting traditions. As a proud partner of MDF, Vortex Optics is dedicated to improving your experience in the field by offering you rugged, Innovative optics and apparel backed by our VIP warranty, our unlimited lifetime promise to take care of you whenever you need us. Together, let's ensure mule deer always have a place to roam. The best hunting stories are yet to be told. Learn more at vortexoptics.com. Okay, coming
1: back, um, we asked this question a lot. Uh, how are mule deer doing in, in Nevada right now? and And how's hunting season going?
3: Well, um, we face some challenges with mule deer, but, um, you know, we're, I think our, our population estimate is, uh, slightly below the the long-term average. I think we're at about 85,000 deer, um, which, you know, in different times of, you know, the eighties, we had a lot more deer, but we're still, we're still doing pretty well. Um, there are areas that are, that are truly struggling and, you know, that's, that's, why we're trying to, to do projects for the benefit of them. Um, but I've been seeing a lot of people successful on on social media um, and some some really nice deer, which I didn't really expect this year because of how dry it was through, through the spring.
1: Now, Tony, putting, putting your ability to draw aside as director... Um, you guys manage more for, you know, you're not a sole opportunity state, right? You guys manage on limited quota, limited entry, more for a a quality slash opportunity versus just general opportunity. Is that correct?
2: Yeah, we try to thread that needle. And I think it would probably be more accurate to, in referring to my draw ability as an inability. Um, (laughs) But I I think, uh, you know, what we try to do when you, i think what's foreign to most people is that the entire state of nevada across the board all species is administered through a draw process um you know the only thing that even comes close to an over-the-counter type opportunity is uh mountain lion tags as, as a big game species everything else is uh is is on a draw basis and we definitely have those individuals who um uh, would define themselves as opportunity, meat hunters. They want to hunt every year. They want to put meat in the freezer. And we we have the other end of the continuum. Uh, You know, people that say, oh, I'm a trophy hunter. I don't care if I have to wait five or six years uh, to have the opportunity to kill a 30-inch buck or or whatever that is. And so it's it's difficult to meet both those expectations. And some of the ways we try to do that, um, historically, we've, we've looked at split seasons where maybe we would have a, a shorter season at a hot dry time of the year where we know we would have low hunter success to accommodate some of those opportunity hunters that want to hunt every year and then have a later longer season with fewer people in the late season where maybe there would be some weather and moving closer to rut Um, but it's really tough because every area is one person's opportunity area and another person's trophy area and so we have a continuum of expectations and you can't you can't manage every area the same, and um, so we we try to thread that needle. But we do uh, we do take a lot of pride in the quality of the experience, the the number of animals that that people see when they're in the field. And to Mike's point, it's it's crazy to me. You know, you looking on social media, you, you'll have some threads where people are are talking about, oh, we need to close the season altogether for two or three years and let all these deer grow up, and then you see pictures of all these 12 and 13 year old boys and girls that have these, you know, giant bucks. And you wonder how the 12 and 13 year old, you know, little boys and girls are able to do that. But there's other people that want to close the, you know, emergency closure for five years. So, you know, you can't you can't make everybody happy, but we, we darn sure try to.
1: Now, Tony, I I would be remiss not to talk about the statewide mule deer tag that that we sell for the state of Nevada every year at our Western Hunting and Conservation Expo. And Jody, I got it right. Um, You know, tell us a little bit about that and what kind of funds does that generate and where do those funds go?
2: Yeah, you you kind of... uh mentioned it a little bit earlier in leveraging, uh, Mike kind of mentioned it in terms of looking for funding to do some of those, uh, like chemical following and and historic deer restoration programs, but that, uh, those auction tags generate the, the primary source of funding for our, our habitat efforts. Uh, it's, it's also leveraged three to one. So for, for every, every dollar that that tag generates, uh, we can leverage that to at least, three federal dollars and then bring in other partners as well. So um, it's it's critical to our operation, all our post-fire re efforts. And interestingly, in, in Nevada, uh, state law that, that enabled that program requires that 100% of those TAG proceeds come back to the state. So uh, it isn't you know, it isn't the mule deer foundation that's, you know, trying to get fat on the, the sale of auction tags. That money comes right back to the department and then is leveraged through federal federal funds or partner funds, three to one or more, to do good things on the ground for for wildlife. And, and mule deer are a huge beneficiary of that. and And we've seen that program just grow and grow and grow and we've added the, uh, the silver state, uh, tag, which, uh, is, is, you know, opportunity for, for everyone. And, um, so there's, there's some pretty good revenue coming into that account and it's funding some, some tremendous projects and to, you know, huge benefit to a number of species.
1: Yeah. We mentioned that because a lot of folks think that it's just, you know, taking the money and run, but really, You know, all the tags that MDF does, you know, on average, about 90% of it goes, goes back to the field, to the state and to the ground. And, you know, those places where we don't get to keep any, we're proud to, to sell those tags, try to generate the maximum amount of, of income and resources back to the, the habitat work, the conservation mule deer. Um, You know, we've got to wrap up here, guys. It's been real pleasure talking to you. Um, You know. Nevada is one of those states with MDF, we don't have a regional director that's based in Nevada, we use a couple of our adjacent uh, regional directors to cover it. And that's basically due because you're the seventh largest state with two population centers and a whole lot of nothing in between. So it, it, it makes it really tough to have a full time staffer there, but we've had successful you know, uh, partnership with y'all. Uh, we're, we're getting money to the ground and, and, you know, I think Tony, as you and I talked with, uh, last week, you know, we're looking forward to strengthening the partnership, expanding our opportunities, particularly with the effort that Mike's leading with these 14 teams out there, identifying the places and the things that should be done for mule deer.
0: Cool guys. Well, thank you guys very much, uh, for what you're doing. Actually, I am, uh, getting ourselves packed up because my daughter's buck tag is this weekend. So we are heading out tomorrow to see if she can, uh, she can connect before she has to get back to school again on Monday. So very limited window, fingers crossed on that. I hope you all have some time out and in the field or hunting out uh, ahead of you still this season. Appreciate all the time until next time. This is Jody Stemler.
1: And I'm Steve Belinda and thank you for talking mule deer.
0: Thanks for Talking Mule Deer with Steve Belinda and Jody Stemmler. The Mule Deer Foundation is the only conservation group in North America dedicated to restoring, improving, and protecting mule deer and black-tailed deer and their habitat. MDF is a strong voice for hunters in access, wildlife management, and conservation policy issues. To find out more, visit www.muledeer.org and stay tuned for the next episode of Talking Mule Deer.